Specialty Story, session number 140. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I'm excited to have a great conversation with Dr. Susan Wilcox today, an emergency medicine-trained, anesthesia-critical care-trained critical care doc. Now, obviously, the conversation that we have today is even more important right now as we are in the middle of this COVID-19 pandemic I talked to Dr. Wilcox at the beginning of March before all of this really started. And so it doesn't come up much at all during the conversation. And that's just to let you know why it doesn't come up. But Dr. Wilcox has been out of training now for 11 years and works in the Partners Healthcare System in Boston. Let's go ahead and jump in, say hello to Dr. Wilcox. We start the conversation by talking about when Dr. Wilcox first became interested in critical care medicine? I came to the two very separately. I did my third and fourth year in medical school. And, you know, I went through third year and I'll just confess, nothing really stuck out at me as being like the thing that I loved. And, you know, I thought that it was, I thought I was going to be an oncologist, actually. I came into medical school totally prepared to go into oncology. I was going to do internal medicine, oncology fellowship. I had it all planned out. And then I just didn't love internal medicine like I thought I would. I liked it, but I didn't love it. And it was the same thing for so many other specialties. And as I got to emergency medicine, I realized that it was doing a little bit of everything that I really liked. And having a patient come in completely undifferentiated, hadn't been worked up, uh, you know, the the paradigm I always think about is like the uh, older lady comes in, short of breath, you know nothing else about her, go. (laughs) And to be able to work the patient up and do the diagnostics as well as resuscitate in the same time, it it, it was suddenly everything clicked. And I realized that this was something, this is what I'd been missing. This is what I was looking for. Mm. And so emergency medicine just felt right. And then as I went through the rest of my fourth year of medical school, I was able to uh, shape the rest of that experience to have the the preparation that I thought I would need to be a good emergency medicine resident going forward. Mm -hmm. So I definitely came to emergency medicine first. Okay. Then when I was a medical, or when I was an emergency medicine resident, I actually started in the pediatric ICU. That was my very first rotation. And so, you know, definitely different than the, the intensive care unit. Now being a little bit older, a little bit wiser and going to the, through the ICU, suddenly it was growing on me and I really liked it. And I got to know the, the kids in the ICU. I got to know their families. And then when I went back to the emergency department, I still loved emergency medicine, but it was just different. And I realized that there was something that that wasn't completely fulfilling me in doing uh, emergency medicine without having any more longitudinal care opportunities. Hmm. So it was the it was the longitudinal care that you're like, well, I'm missing this a little bit. I, I get some of that high acuity stuff, figuring stuff out, but I'm missing the longitudinal stuff. So that was a big draw for critical care. Yeah, that was a lot of it. I realized that you know, in the emergency department, I would have these these great cases. We would resuscitate patients. We would be really proud of the care that we provided. 
And then they would go upstairs and I would watch them roll out of the emergency department and think, you know, I wonder what's going to happen next. Mm. I, I it, it was kind of disappointing to to work so hard and taking good care of somebody and then to watch them leave. And, and, you know, some of my colleagues actually appreciate that. They, they like that. Conversely, I, I wanted to see what would happen. I wanted to continue the conversation and I, I wanted to follow them longer. I'm interested to, to have that further conversation around that emergency medicine hook for you of really having that undifferentiated person come in, that patient come in and you working that up. I'm, I'm kind of happy that you mentioned that and not the, what I think a lot of students chase after with emergency medicine is that high adrenaline, like gunshot wounds and stabbings. And that's the, that's the stuff I want because I've had other emergency medicine physicians on there. Like, yeah, that's maybe 5% of the cases. That is so true. So, uh, yeah, the, the the super high acuity patient, they're relatively few and far between, even when I'm working in the high acuity area of the emergency department. Mm-hmm. And what I'll tell you, too, is that when you're a student and you're seeing these patients, every single one of them is uh, exciting. They're a little scary. Uh, it's novel. And honestly, part of the reason that you do emergency medicine training is so that you don't feel frightened or nervous or scared when you see those patients. Yeah. And so in one way, some of the uh, excitement and the the novelty will wear off with the training. That's literally what it's supposed to do. Um, but then, you know, in the other way, you, you just feel confident and comfortable in taking care of those patients. So it's a, uh, if you're looking for the adrenaline rush, you know, it, it definitely does happen in emergency medicine, but certainly not, not that often because, you know, having good training, it's, I, let me back up. If if you uh, if you're having the adrenaline rush all the time in the emergency department, <laughs> then you're probably not well trained because <laughs> you're not supposed. To, that's not supposed to happen. Yeah. And so then I I bring it back to the more fundamental to think: you know, what are you really doing um, day by day at the patient's bedside over and over? And for me, it, it really is about that the patient comes in, something's wrong because they come to the emergency department, and it's up to us to try to figure out why in an expedited manner. And, you know, for some patients, like the, the patient I started with, uh, the hypothetical patient with the shortness of breath, you do have to both test, you know, do your diagnostics and react uh, at the same time. Make sure that she's getting all the things that she needs uh, that are life and limb saving. Yep. But uh, that's, that's, not the, that's not the majority of them. For a lot of patients, it's really about making a diagnosis. And if you can figure out for some patients what's going on, that in and of itself can be so relieving and, and be a huge part of why they came to the emergency department. So, you know, that's, that's a lot of the work that I find to be very gratifying. Yeah. What are some of the biggest misconceptions or myths around emergency medicine or more specifically, maybe critical care medicine? So I think that there are a couple of myths. You already touched on, on one that it's, you know, it's yeah. all excitement all the time because it's, it's, it's definitely not. A lot of it is um, seeing similar types of patients uh, routinely and getting good at, at making your, your diagnosis and figuring out what the, the patients need. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's uh, unfortunately an idea that um, in the emergency department, the only thing uh, clinicians care about is turnover and trying to get, you know, get the patient in and out as fast as possible. You know, to some degree, there is a, a real issue with that, that we have to get patients moving because, you know, there's patients who are waiting and, and it's the realities of our, our healthcare system. We have to move patients quickly. 
but no one wants to do a bad job. Everyone wants to make sure that their patients are well worked up and, and well treated. So, you know, sometimes I think that that uh, the idea of just, you know, people joke about dispo any way you can get it, moving patients through any way you can. I, I think that's a, a little bit overstated. Yeah. Yeah. Regarding critical care. Um, so emergency medicine, critical care is, is definitely a, a particular beast. Um, I think this, I, I am coming back to your, your question, but I, I think emergency medicine is great preparation for doing critical care later on. However, I think that there's this, uh, this idea or this myth now that it is, um, an easier pathway or it's, it's a well-established pathway. Um, I unfortunately still see so many people who go through, do emergency medicine, do critical care, come out, are great clinicians, have a lot to offer, and then really struggle to find their, their niche, find their place, because it is such a very particular skill set, and not every institution is going to have opportunities for, for people to do emergency medicine and critical care. Mm-hmm. So while it's way better than it was, you know, what was it, 12 years ago when I started, it's definitely improved. We still have a long way to go. Yeah. For someone who's listening to this and really doesn't understand when we're talking about critical care medicine, explain what that specifically is, kind of where in the hospital are you, what types of patients are you seeing and treating? What does that look like? Yeah. So uh, critical care medicine, also known as intensive care medicine, is really care of patients in the intensive care unit or in the ICU. and it means that patients have some sort of critical illness that requires constant monitoring with specially trained uh, nurses, physicians, pharmacists, respiratory therapists, a whole team approach to, to take care of these patients because they have something that is literally life-threatening going on. And so they need uh, minute-to-minute monitoring that can be, and they, they also need invasive therapies as well. Um, the common things that would land a patient in the intensive care unit are having respiratory failure to the point of needing a ventilator or having an endotracheal tube put in and having some sort of external breathing support, um, needing blood pressure medications to keep their blood pressure up most commonly. Every once in a while, somebody will have a hypertensive crisis or have uh, an issue where their blood pressure is too high and they need to have their, their blood pressure brought down. Uh, certainly patients who are having acute MIs or or heart attacks um, can occasionally have uh, complications that will land them in the intensive care unit, uh, similarly like a stroke, something like that. Sometimes the patients, if they have severe deficits, will will need intensive care. Uh, So, you know, I I mentioned a whole broad range of things that patients can get in the intensive care unit. And depending upon what hospital you're in and what your institution does, there are sometimes different flavors of intensive care units. And so there can be the neurology intensive care unit where the patients with the strokes or head bleeds are sometimes occasionally traumatic brain injury. Sometimes, sometimes they go to the trauma ICU, uh, but they can go to those units. There are medical intensive care units, which are more classically patients who have a bad pulmonary disease, respiratory failure, um, sometimes a toxicologic emergencies, um, sepsis, of course. That's a, that's a big one that will land patients in the medical intensive care unit. Uh, I do a lot of work in the cardiac intensive care unit, both taking care of patients who've had cardiac surgery and then patients who are having uh, complications after having heart failure or having uh, an MI or heart attack. Um, and then, 
you know, pediatrics, of course, has their own intensive care unit for, for children who are critically ill. And uh, surgical critical care, you know, I, I alluded to a trauma ICU. Some, some units will blend uh, trauma and surgical patients together in one unit, and some will separate them out. Patients who have had surgeries and then are, are critically ill afterwards. Yeah. And so people can come to critical care as physicians through all different pathways, usually specializing in the the specialty that leads to that. So, for example, um, a surgeon can become a, a specialist in surgical critical care. A neurologist can become a specialist in neurology critical care, uh, et cetera. Yeah, very cool. So for, for the student listening to this, just to, to translate some these words that they, they may have heard before, haven't really associated with. So a lot of these ICUs, right? The, the ICUs, the PICU, NICU, SICU, MICU, all these different ICUs that students have been like, what is that thing, right? It's usually a, an intensive care unit followed by or preceded by the, the type of specialty that is, is that uh, flavor. Exactly, exactly. Awesome. For for someone, right, your path from emergency medicine to critical care, I think a lot of students potentially will understand that emergency medicine is probably some procedures. For critical care medicine, for someone who likes to do procedures and, and do things with their hands, is there a lot of opportunity for procedures in that world? Oh, definitely. Um, it's, I you know, I... I remind people that there's a lot more thinking than there is doing in critical care, but but um, definitely a part of being a, a good uh, critical care doctor or otherwise known as an intensivist is being able to, to do procedures, to be facile with your hands. Sometimes patients need something done and they need it done quickly. And you have to have both the mindset where you're going to jump in and do what the patient needs at the moment they need it done, as well as the technical ability to get the procedures done. Some of the common ones that ha come up in the intensive care unit are uh, airway management, like for the patient who's struggling to breathe, who needs uh, an endotracheal tube placed. Uh, that's probably one of the most common procedures that we need to do. Uh, central line placements, where we put in uh, basically an intensive, a uh, very large uh, intravenous line that goes usually into the neck, the chest, or the groin into one of the, the large veins there uh, to be able to give medications directly into the central circulation and to monitor the, the pressures in the, the venous circulation as well. Um, we do arterial lines where we place uh, a blood pressure monitor directly into an artery so that we're able to monitor the blood pressure literally beat to beat and, and follow the blood pressure and follow the, the effects of our interventions. Um, those are kind of the, the, some of the, the really big ones. There are definitely other procedures that are, that are possible, like we do uh, thoracentesis, which is where we will take fluid off from the, around the lungs, or a paracentesis where we take fluid off that's accumulated in the belly, such as with a patient who has cirrhosis. Mm. Um, sometimes patients need chest tubes if they have a collapsed lung, and we have to, we have to put a tube in to release the air from that, that space. Um, and that's just, that's just a, a small smattering of the things that we have to be able to be comfortable doing as an intensive, as an intensivist. Yeah. Lots of fun stuff for, for those who like mm -hmm. that, uh, mm -hmm. like those kind of procedures and other students are like, Oh, no, thank you. <laughs> don't don't want to do that. <laughs> um, so that's, that's good that, that that's out there for, for you again. I am kind of comparing emergency medicine and critical care because that's your path. Although you did mention there's a lot of different paths to become an intensivist. I, I think a lot of students will understand the 
um, the shift work nature of emergency medicine, what does it look like for critical care medicine typically as a as an ICU doc? What are you working? Are you working kind of hospitalist hours of of kind of seven days on, seven days off, or what does that look like for you? Yeah, so that's incredibly variable right now. Um, I was just speaking with a friend about this last night um, who was looking at different hospitals. So, you know, as with so many things, it really varies upon depending upon where you are. So at my institution, we have gone to a shift structure in our intensive care units that is very analogous to the emergency department. Mm. We've realized that our patients are so sick, we want to make sure that we have an attending physician there 24-7. And the only way to really do that is to have a, a shift structure, just like what we do in the, the emergency department. So for us, we have somebody who comes in early in the morning, usually around 6 a.m., stays till 4, and then we have somebody who comes in at 4 p.m., stays until about 10.30 or 11, and then we have an overnight person who comes in at 10.30 and takes over and then stays until 6 a.m. But there are definitely intensive care units that have more of the uh, week-on, week-off model, like you were mentioning. And for some of those, they will have, they'll do, for example, like seven days and the, the attending will be on and he or she will come in first day and they will stay until their work is, you know, relatively done. And when they feel like all the patients are stable enough and everything is tucked, they will go home and then sometimes they're on home call. Often they're on their own home call. And so whoever is in the ICU, um, it could be uh, a resident, uh, maybe a nurse practitioner, maybe a hospitalist. The, the, very, the structure is very significantly. They will kind of keep an eye on the patients. And if there's anything that needs the intensivist to come back or needs the intensivist input overnight, they'll call and, and they'll take calls from home. And if a patient's really sick, then they come back in. And then even though they might have been up all night, then the next morning they're back on. Uh, and they're they're there during the day and they round during the day. So you can see that there are some advantages and disadvantages to, to each model. Having the shift structure, it can be tough to work seven nights in a row. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's a lot of work. Conversely, you know, having seven days on where you could be up almost every night, if not every night, gets really tiring too. Yeah. But you know the patients really well, you know all the issues. And so the, you know the, it's, there's pluses and minuses, which I think is why you'll see a lot of variability among different systems because yeah. people just have made choice, choices. What does a typical day look like for you? So I, in a, in a way, I think I'm very fortunate that I don't have anything that's a, a typical day. So uh, I, I am fortunate to work for three different groups. I work in the emergency department at Mass General. And I work in the intensive care unit. As I mentioned, I do mostly cardiac critical care. And then I also work for Boston MedFlight. And I um, am a medical director for, for Boston MedFlight. But for example, today I woke up this morning and I did a bunch of academic work. I uh, worked on some manuscripts and some research projects. I went to a lecture at noon to hear a colleague speak about the uh, about uh, Medicaid expansion. Mm-hmm. And then here in a few hours, I'm going to go in and I'm going to work overnight in the intensive care unit. I'm doing a shift tonight uh, in, a, in a different unit. It's a little bit different than the structure I just mentioned. I'm going to work 5 p.m. and then I'm going to be off at 7 a.m. Wow. And then tomorrow morning, I have a staff meeting, a couple hours of staff meeting, and then I'm going to the residency lectures 
in the afternoon. So, wait, wait, where does sleep yeah. play into this? That's what the student's <laughs> asking. Wait a minute. I thought there's work hour regulations. <laughs> oh, yeah, not, for not for attendings. Not for attendings. You know, I, I am optimistic that I'll maybe get a couple of hours of sleep on the, the ICU tonight and I might be able to sneak in a, a quick nap uh, tomorrow. And what I want to say, want to be very clear about is I love my job. Yep. I, and I'm not just saying that. I genuinely love my work. Nobody's making me do all of this. I'm, I feel very fortunate to be able to, to do the things that I do. I'm very lucky. And so this happens to be a little bit of a back-to-back stretch. But yeah. that's, it's not always like that. Yeah. It's definitely not. You just happen to catch me on a particular day. <laughs> do you feel like you have enough time for life outside of the hospital? Um. I think I do. I, yeah, I definitely do. Um, so, you know, I, uh, I'm, I'm married. I, I don't have children, but that's actually just a, a personal choice. Uh, but I definitely, we travel, we see our family. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like I have plenty of time to do all the things that I, I like to do. Um, I sew, I make my own clothes. <laughs> like that's actually my hobby. So, Very cool. um, you, you know, I have time to, I have time to indulge myself in a, in a fun hobby. So, you know, I don't think that I, I totally devote myself to work. Yeah. What is the, the training path? You mentioned a few different specialties, but what, is there a particular common training path to become a critical care doc? Yeah, so there are there are really three that are that are the most common for the vast majority of ICUs, and that would be through internal medicine, and then doing either pulmonary critical care or just critical care as a as a fellowship after doing uh, internal medicine. People will do anesthesia or anesthesiology, and then they'll do a, a critical care fellowship after that, or then surgery, and then doing a critical care uh, fellowship after that. And so those would all correspond. Go to you know, the med- internal medicine would go to MICU, and then uh, anesthesia to a surgical ICU, and surgery to a surgical ICU. However, a lot of intensive care units are starting to have, um, how do I say this, a more uh, broad-based hiring policy. And so just because you did an internal medicine pathway does not mean that you're necessarily relegated to doing a MICU. So people can move back and forth between the the different types of, of ICUs. And I mentioned before that people can do neurology and then do neurocritical mm-hmm. care. That one, because it's so highly specialized, is very often, if you do neurology and then do neurocritical care, you usually end up doing neurocritical care because yeah. it's it's a very particular type of, of critical care. Yeah. But the other three maybe have a little bit more flexibility in moving back and forth. For an osteopathic medical student or resident listening to this, what do they need to do to potentially overcome any negative bias and get into the critical care world? So I would say that um, you know critical care is, is moderately competitive um, and you know, I, I do recognize that there is bias. I will also say that some of the very best intensivists I have ever worked with have been DOs. And that uh, those of us who uh, work in the field recognize that uh, MD, DO, it, 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 it doesn't matter. It yeah. does not matter. We, um, I, I'm just delighted to have people who are interested in the, in the specialty and we'd be lucky to have you. The things that I would tell everybody are that to be competitive, it's, it's really nice if you're going into your fellowship application, having 
um, something special on your your application, be it a some publication. And again, this does not need to be a New England Journal original research study. No, no. But just showing that you've you know, written up a, a couple of case reports that you've done, uh, worked with somebody on a review article, something, something to show that you're the kind of person who can take a project and get it done. That that really says a lot to to a program director. Uh, if you could present a poster at a national meeting, um, if you can join some societies and uh, you know, take on some leadership role, which is very, very doable as a resident. It might sound like it's like all of this is like so much on top of what you're expecting residency to be, but most residencies will give you some time, some uh, yeah, some flexible time to to engage in these uh, extracurricular activities. So it doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to set the world on fire. You just have to show that you're the kind of person who can take something and get something done because that's what people want to see. And so, you know, it, there, there still is some bias. I totally, I, I totally acknowledge that that does happen. Yep. But again, we, uh, we'd be lucky to, to have people who are interested, engaged in the kind of people who get stuff done. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm glad I'm talking to you, obviously being at Mass General, one of the most prestigious medical institutions in the entire world. That's usually where you still see a lot of the biases that are these huge, really big prestigious academic centers. Um, a lot of people who I talk to are like, yeah, we don't see much bias, but, but you also did mention some of the best people I worked with are DOs, which I hear all the time. Uh, it's just, once you're at this level, it's like, I, who, what are you? MD, DO? I don't know. You're just, you're my colleague. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It all fades away. Like yeah. doesn't even matter. Yeah. So I'm interested, a, a, a typical question that I ask is, is what sort of opportunities are there outside of clinical medicine? But I don't want to ask that question of you because I want to ask from a clinical medicine standpoint, you're the director of the Boston Med Flight, which I think a lot of people are like, well, that's really cool. How do I become a medical director or something like that? What, is that, what does that actually look like? What, what does that title allow you to do? do you, are you jumping up in, in helicopters, going and, and saving people in the air? <laughs> Well, um, I, I wish I could say that I were. I'm going to I'm going to confess on this podcast that I have a terrible secret. I get unbelievably motion sick. Um, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I, I am one of those people who has to take Dramamine to take a commercial flight okay. because I will throw up if I don't. Um, so riding in a helicopter is actually not all that fun for me. <laughs> but what I love is this idea of transporting the very sickest patients. And so I am so lucky. I get to work with some of the best paramedics and nurses in the country working at Boston MedFlight. And they transport patients that are, you know, that are incredibly sick who need to get into Boston to get tertiary level care, to get that, that specialized care that they can't get anywhere else. And it's what my, what I do is um, I work with them in writing medical protocols, uh, in reviewing cases, and doing ongoing medical education, uh, be it lectures. We we do a lot of education actually now by email, mm -hmm. just to review cases and talk about the updates in the literature, things like that. Um, I lead their research efforts. So we're constantly looking at our processes and figuring out what we do well and what we can do better and to try to figure out how we can uh, share our insights with the rest of the medical community writ large. So, you know, that, that's a lot of my work with them. The, uh, the clinical work that they do is absolutely incredible. 
And maybe if there's a way to ever get over my motion sickness without falling asleep, I will be able to be part of it as well. But <laughs> um, it is so for people to get involved with this, um, there's lots of different pathways. We have associate medical directors who have come through emergency medicine. We've had people who have come through anesthesia and then done critical care. People have done surgery and critical care. Um, so a lot of different pathways. Emergency medicine critical care is a popular way to get to do uh critical care transport though because as you can imagine there's a huge overlap between emergency medicine critical care and then transporting these really sick patients so having a little bit of that understanding of the ems the emergency medical services background that you get with emergency medicine and as well as understanding um, how intensive care units work what critical ill what critical illness looks like and what the patients need um, it's it's a great mix to have a future working in critical care transport yeah so from from my background, being in the Air Force for five years, I was very familiar as a flight surgeon, familiar with the CCAT teams, the critical care uh, air transport uh, teams, um, where there were actually physicians, critical care physicians typically on the airplanes. From a med flight perspective, how common is it for a physician to be on that team in the aircraft with a patient? Or is it typically just paramedics and nurses? Yeah. So, you know, in the United States, we have a slightly different model. So uh, in contrast to the to the military model, exactly as you said, that has a strong physician support on the civilian side in the United States, predominantly it is a paramedic and nurse transport teams. So I'll, I'll tell you that our paramedics and nurses have extensive experience. They have to show that they have worked in a high volume, high acuity environment for several years before they can even apply to work at, at Boston MedFlight. And then they undergo an, uh, another extensive orientation period where they're, they're precepted and, and trained up on, on our uh, on our protocols and, and our standards of care. And then, as I mentioned already, we do in-depth case reviews to make sure that we have ongoing continual medical education and that we're doing everything as optimally as possible. With that system, I, I think that we provide excellent care uh, without a physician on board. How common that is, is it's, it's actually, uh, yeah, again, it's, it's pretty common in the United States. Mm -hmm. There are definitely some cities where uh, physicians are more involved in the transports. Uh, Cincinnati is one that comes to mind. Um, I think Madison, Wisconsin, they have a, a physician-based transport system, or a lot of physicians will, will fly with their group. But it's kind of sprinkled throughout the, the country. Mm. And so, you know, we definitely uh, let physicians do ride-alongs, but... I'll actually say that a lot of time when we do that, it's more for the physician's benefit yeah. than for the patient's. Yeah. <laughs> so that the physician could get some training and get some experience, but it's yeah. not necessarily because it's going to change the the way that we would take care of the patient in in route. Yeah. Is that a is that a reimbursement issue of just paying for a physician to be there because they don't really need to be there, or insurance companies don't think they need to be there? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. So you know, if you just being blunt, doctors yeah. are expensive, <laughs> and like, so if you don't have to have a doctor on your on your flight, then you, it may not be cost effective. And I'll tell you, you know, I looking at all of our our uh, adverse events and route and and the care that we provide, I, I think we provide 
excellent care. And I would definitely have myself or anyone I love be transported by one of our nurse paramedic teams without a physician because I, I think we provide excellent care without a physician. Yeah. But it is a little bit controversial. Yeah. And certainly in Europe, you know, and, and with the military models, um, we they have physicians on board and they provide excellent care too. But... Yeah, my, my argument has long been that it might be more uh, effective to have a physician have a role like what I have or what my colleagues have to work with the nurse paramedic teams, uh, train them up, you know, keep everyone at really high standards, which which we already which we do, and um, provide that oversight, but not necessarily going on every single transport because like we do five thousand transports a year, and paying wow. for a doctor to be involved in those would be. That'd be a lot. <laughs> it would be so. a lot, a lot. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> right. Okay. okay. Very interesting. Yeah. If you could go back and talk to yourself before you entered critical care, what would you go back and tell yourself with what you know now? Um, you know, I think I'd say, hold on. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, about to, it's about to be a rocky road. Um, That's what the drama means I, for. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I always talk about how doing critical care after emergency medicine was simultaneously the best and the worst thing I ever did. Um, the best thing, because as I said, I'm being totally sincere. I love my work. I am really lucky to get to do what I do. And I, I get to take care of so many of the sickest patients in the New England area at a hospital I adore. And it, it's fantastic. Conversely, when you do emergency medicine critical care, you have, by definition, a minimum of two bosses, two sets of faculty meetings, two sets of residency education expectations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that means that for a long time, I have worked twice as many nights, twice as many holidays, twice as many weekends, because they're, they have their own requirements. And so trying to get the two schedules to line up and make sure that you're fulfilling your needs for these two different groups can be really challenging. Mm -hmm. And that's not just unique to my experience here. That's something that I hear from my colleagues in emergency medicine, critical care nationwide. It's just, it's just tough to have two jobs, two bosses and so on, yeah. two schedules. And so that's why I say that sometimes it's the, the worst thing I ever did. Yeah. I still have time outside of the hospital. I still, you know, do have some control over my schedule, which is, which is nice. Um, but, you know, I, I work more nights, weekends, and holidays than many of my colleagues in either other one. So, and, you know, it, it, it is what it is. So I've, I've made this choice and, and I'm happy with it. But I, I would warn myself, in, you know, for the future that that's, this is what you're signing up for. Do you see any changes coming to that kind of model to where you only have one boss and you're only in one setting? Yeah, so I think that it's slowly starting to change. One of the reasons that this has been an issue is because despite all those other pathways, or I should say in contrast to all those other pathways I mentioned, emergency medicine is really the one specialty that doesn't yet own their own true intensive care units. So, you know, surgery owns an ICU, the, Mickey, or the medical group owns an ICU, but we don't really have our own ICU. That's starting to change. Um, like my colleagues at Michigan um, have created the EC3, which is a fantastic ED-based intensive care unit. It's a little bit different than your usual ICU in that they don't keep patients there long-term, mm -hmm. like what we do. You know, some of our patients can be there for days, weeks, months, yeah. and that's not what they do in the, in the ED 
uh, the EC3 at Michigan. But it's a fantastic model. They're doing great work. And they just recently had a publication to show that they're improving outcomes with this model. And so I'm optimistic that as this model takes off and more people see the great work that they're doing, that there will eventually be a role for an emergency medicine ICU where we can control our own unit. And then once you are doing both facets of your work, but under the same umbrella, then that duality will be improved. And so that that's my hope for the future, that as emergency medicine starts to have a larger footprint in critical care, this will change. Interesting. I just Googled the EC3 as you were talking, the Emergency Critical Care Center. That's really cool. Yeah, they're doing fantastic work. What do you like the most about being an intensivist? I love feeling like I actually made a difference. I know that that's corny. I know that people say that all the time (laughs) and that it's, it's probably trite at this point. I really do find incredible satisfaction in my work when I have a patient who is extremely ill and I feel comfortable and confident taking care of that patient. It's, it's a, it's an incredible feeling. And then conversely, you know, sometimes in the intensive care unit, we have patients that we can't save and because everyone, everyone dies. And the fact that I have had the training as an emergency medicine, critical care physician to prepare me to have conversations with families and the patients about their end-of-life care and how we can make it the the best possible, give them the most dignity and the most quality at the end of their lives. You know, it really feels like I'm making a difference. And so that those are definitely things that I, I go home and I, I feel good about the care that I've provided. What do you like the least? Hmm. Besides charting. Probably. <laughs> Oh, you took my answer. (laughs) I don't know any doctor who wouldn't say charting. (laughs) Um, You know, it it, it does, there, there are definitely long hours and there are definitely times when I, when I do these stretches where, you know, I, I, I do get tired. It's my choice and I'm happy doing what I do, but minute to minute, you know, I, I can't be too, uh, I, I can't be too much of a shine on it. I have to be honest that there are definitely times when I get tired and I've been working long hours and it feels like the the work just continues and continues. Yeah. But I think that uh, most physicians who are who are practicing will will you know, have those times as well because that's that's part of the reality of being a physician. And I, I do think that having a, a job that you love and having bosses that you feel like you can talk to and you can trust allow you to to mitigate some of the, the downsides of that. Do you see a trend in the field of critical care medicine, specifically those coming from emergency medicine, where the quote unquote like busy years or good years when you're younger and have more stamina are spent more in the critical care setting and they're like, okay. I'm getting a little bit older. I'm slowing down a little bit. I'll go back to the ED. Do people do that or, or no, not really. Um, you know, it's, it's really interesting. Um, I do think that a lot of people who do emergency medicine, critical care end up spending a lot of their time in the ICU. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people who have actually stopped doing emergency medicine altogether. And I think part of it is the, um, 
yeah, I've heard a lot of them make similar statements about what I've said, that creating these relationships, um, being able to follow patients more longitudinally, uh, it's, it's really satisfying. And so once they get a taste of that and they're coming at it from having the benefit of the emergency medicine training, they really like it. Yeah. You know, emergency medicine is a is a tough game as you get as you get older. Honestly, uh, doing that because in emergency medicine, there's no way around the 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 nights and the the weekends. Mm-hmm. Um, some groups will say like after you turn sixty, you can stop doing nights. <laughs> oh, that's so uh, nice of them. That's, I know. It's, like, <laughs> oh gosh, that still feels like a very long way away. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, it 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 is hard because it's it's a uh, you're constantly on when you're there, and you know it's uh you know you're their constant uh, bombardment of your of your thoughts with new information, new stimuli, and so um, I don't know that it's necessarily that they go back to the ED when when they're uh, a little bit older because it, but you know both of them have their own challenges, so they can be a little bit tough. Um, yeah. I think the part of it is that as we all kind of go through our careers, we we find a a, a spot that works well for us, and we kind of tend to to settle in there and yeah. and see where we where we should be. Do you see any major changes coming to the field of critical care medicine that a, a student coming up, following in your footsteps, should potentially be aware of that that may or may may or may not change their decision? Um. I think that there's definitely going to be a stronger move towards shift work. More and more groups are are going towards this shift model, like I described earlier. And you know, some people like that, and then some people actually find it to be unsatisfying. Because the, the downside is that you are sharing your, your patients with somebody else. That you, know, you might leave in the evening with a particular idea of the trajectory, and your colleague can can change it. Now, if you work in a good group, that's that's fine, and those are things that you can definitely definitely deal with. But I've heard some people, you know, express uh, discontentment with the idea of of doing shift work because they want to have the sole responsibility for for managing those patients. Um, you know, another thing is that I'm optimistic. I, I think this will be a good thing. I'm optimistic that critical care is going to become more integrated. With time, there are definitely these groups like uh, the Society of Critical Care Medicine, which is looking to break down some of the barriers and that we've had in, in critical care with these strict silos of this is surgical critical care, this is medical critical care. You know, you're a pharmacist, you're a doctor, you're a nurse, and and to actually have more integration and more interdisciplinary uh, involvement. And so, I I see that as being definitely a good thing, but. The, you know, the downside is that it means that there's more to learn, more to more to work on. And and so the the knowledge never stops coming. Yeah. If you had to do it all over again, would you still choose to be a, an intensivist? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. All of the you know additional work, the additional training is so worth it. Um, I, I might be a little tired and a little grumpy tomorrow <laughs> afternoon, but I will totally I'd still totally say the same thing. Um, it has definitely been worth it. For the pre-med or medical student or even resident listening to this, thinking about critical care medicine, what final words of wisdom do you have for them? What I tell people who are doing emergency medicine and then want to do critical care is you've you've really got to want it. And if you want it, go for it. If you if you're ambivalent, if you're not so sure, it's not something that you should do because you know you think you might like it. If you but if you really want it, 
then it is absolutely worth it. It is so satisfying to be with the sickest patients and work on them and and to feel like you've really made a difference and that you're improving their trajectory. And then, you know, to build those relationships with patients and their families can be so incredibly valuable, but it's not for the faint of heart. All right, so there you have it again, Dr. Susan Wilcox, emergency medicine trained for her residency and then did a fellowship in anesthesia critical care. Great conversation. I hope this opened your eyes to this field. And if you're interested in it, now you can go out and find some more information. So again, thanks to Dr. Wilcox for taking some time to chat with us. Hope you all are safe during this time, this pandemic that is going on. And I hope you continue to do so moving forward. We'll see you next week here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.